Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one in the coast guard we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Episode 613 with my guest Liz Mealy. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It is not a doctor's office, even though we got some nice magazines. Do, do they even make magazines anymore? Let me let me look into that. <laughs> uh I have been struggling with something that is so embarrassing to talk about. I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but what is embarrassing to me is how frequently this thing pops up in my life. Now, look, I'm sober 19 years from drugs and alcohol. I haven't looked at porn in, God, I don't know, eight months. I gave up video games four months ago, and the last thing that's fucking with me is being a control freak when I play hockey. I, I'll, I'll like say prayers on the way to the rink. Please let me just accept whatever the outcome is. Just let me focus on playing the best that I can and ignoring everything else. And within five minutes, I find myself barking at a guy, get your head in the fucking game. What am I doing? And of course, I immediately apologize to him when we get to the bench. But it's so embarrassing. Where where does that come from? Is it is it a daddy thing? Because dad would show me love when and express joy when I pitched a good little league game, and then the rest of the time he was just kind of checked out. I don't know. But I found this theme kind of revealing itself to me just through conversations during the week and and things I was watching on TV. Um, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine 
uh, actually, he was sharing in my support group, and he was talking about how he's working on trying to become a better listener with his girlfriend, how he's trying to resist the urge to have her speed up whatever it is that she's sharing or finding a solution to it or, you know, um, trying to get her to, to look at things in, in different ways rather than just saying nothing and just listening, you know, and maybe affirming what she said by, you know, wow, that must be really difficult. Tell me more about that. Because there's, there's this thing in so many of us where we want to, and we can't even see it, it's so well camouflaged, that we want to make something about us, whether it's our discomfort sitting and listening to somebody or us wanting to be the hero and fixing them. And that's what's what's going on with me when I'm playing hockey is I'm, I am taking it personally when the other team scores on us. I'm letting it affect my self-esteem, even though I intellectually know you have no control over how other people play. This is a stupid fucking game. You're almost 60 years old. Doesn't matter. There's still this something in my central nervous system that just starts firing and going, you are not worthy of respect. <laughs> and then the, the, the other place where I saw this, I watched this amazing four-part documentary on HBO called Hostage, and it's about the um, hostage crisis that happened in 1979 through 1980 um, when the, the then-government in Iran ruled by the Shah was overthrown and hostages uh, were taken from the American embassy, and they were held for 444 days, and Jimmy Carter was president at the time. And no matter how much he tried to negotiate, uh, often they wouldn't even negotiate. They wouldn't even, um, you know, uh, meet with diplomats. There was this call, as you can imagine, from a large portion of America that we just need, the answer was, and, and the hostages were, you know, they were not, none, none of them were being killed. Um, you know, as far as being hostages, uh, it, it sounds like it was on the better side of the spectrum. Uh, I mean, being a hostage in any situation is horrifying and traumatizing, but they weren't actively you know, being whipped and beaten, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't like we need to rush in there. They are going to die any minute. Their bodies are going to give out. It wasn't one of those situations. And yet so much of America was calling for us to bomb the shit out of Iran, which would have ensured the death of the hostages. And as I'm watching it, I thought, wow, here's society making it about themselves. In that moment, they don't give a shit about the hostages. They are wrapped up in whether or not they're being respected as a country. And I have to say, my, my hat is off to uh, 
to Jimmy Carter for as much as he fucked up. There was a lot of things he did that were really shitty in his presidency, but not storming that embassy. Um, I think, actually, I take that back because he did try and it was a failed attempt. And, and there were there were casualties on our side. It was an aborted attempt to try to rescue them. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Wow. Let's just wrap it up with, hey, if you find yourself agitated, ask yourself, am I making this all about me? Do you want that last six minutes of your life back? I'm sorry. There's nothing we can do. Stop making it about you. This is from the fear survey filled out by a woman who calls herself borderline but brave. She writes, I fear that someday I'll get my emotion regulation under control and I'll feel flat. Like all my emotions are stripped from me and I can't tell when I'm really happy or really sad and definitely nothing in between. And then in parentheses, maybe that's just the Abilify entering the chat. Thank you for that. This is from the fear survey filled out by Roxy, and she writes, I fear that I will keep having lofty goals that I put off, or even worse, attempt and find impossible to achieve. Please, for the love of all that is goodness, let me decide to stop drinking and make it work without me having to do something as drastic as rehab. Thank you. Thank you for that. And one of the reasons why I wanted to read your survey was I wanted to say part of asking for help is surrendering to what form that arrives in. And if you have to go to rehab, go to rehab. That might be what it takes to get you to get some momentum to stay sober. This is from the love survey uh, filled out by somebody who calls themselves, she has huge tracts of land. Ah, Nice uh, Monty Python reference there. I think that's a Monty Python reference. Um, I love seeing a dog enjoying having its head out the car window. That's a great one. Uh, I love in the spring and summer finding toads of all sizes and shapes, just hanging out on the sidewalk at night and then petting them until they hop away. That's cute. I love garden gnomes. I love watching groundhogs run, especially when they're getting extra chubby in the fall before hibernation. I love laughing so hard I can't breathe and get a little dizzy. I love watching it snow a ton when I don't have to go out at all the next day. Oh, that's a great one. I love listening to my son. He just graduated high school, and so he still lives at home, carrying on and laughing hysterically with his friends while they play games online. Oh, those are awesome. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey, uh, filled out again by Borderline But Brave. And uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? That I am not allowed to show my emotions or else I am asking for attention. Guess how hard it is hiding your emotions when you have borderline personality disorder? Question mark. Answer, easy, dot, dot, dot. Uh, I'm fucking with you. It's a nightmare. Yeah, I can't imagine. I cannot imagine. That that has to be such such a mind fuck. Thank you for that. Um, from the love survey, Ying Yang writes, I love when rock and roll bands add soulful female backup singers. Oh, that is such a great one. Such a great one. 
If you've never seen the uh, documentary 40 Feet from Stardom, is it 40, 20 feet, 40 feet from stardom? No, it's six miles from stardom. Now, if you've never seen that documentary, it's awesome. Especially uh, with Mary Clayton, who is the voice in the back of the background um, and sometimes in the foreground of the Rolling Stones song, uh, Gimme Shelter. Fuck, every time I hear that song, uh, I get chills because I have the flu. This uh, is from the... Uh, <laughs> I'm already reading this survey, idiot. Uh, I love peeling that thin layer of plastic off a new watch face, phone, etc. Awesome. Awesome. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Um, as I mentioned, pretty much every week, I have a great relationship with my therapist, Heidi. I've been using BetterHelp for, for years. And one of the things, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before, but... I really like that they have, um, uh, you can journal online and then decide whether or not you want to, you know, click a button and have that journaling shared with your therapist. So when she has me write goals out, um, I share those with her. And it's nice to have those kind of handy for the next time that, uh, that I meet with her. Because uh, it's really, it's, uh, it's about solutions for me. So much of recovery and, and, and growing and just being more relaxed in my life is is just about what's the tool I'm going to use for this. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists at any time. When you want to become a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash mental. And make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. And then uh, finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Beetle. And she writes, my mother has always had high expectations of me my whole life and is notoriously hard to please. Recently, I recalled a time in elementary school when I won a school-wide computer-generated bridge-building contest and returned home that day with an award to show my family. 
But when I got home to show my mom, she simply said, oh, that's wonderful. Did everyone get an award? Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm, I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt. Push it all down. You can't go around it. Ireland, like we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget experiencing the same thing as you. That the places you feel most broken now. You just gotta look for them. Will one day be your greatest strength. And when you find them, it's a great feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Ah, you're in the right place. I'm here with Liz Mealy, who is a um, very funny stand-up comedian. I just watched uh, your special last night, uh, "The Ghost of uh, Academic Future." No, that's the new one. So the one that came, oh. at, the one that you watched was "Self Help Me." No, no, they gave me a trailer to. Oh, they gave you an advance to an the... An advance. Oh, oh, to the... Yeah. Other? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, oh special. Very <laughs> funny. Very funny. And uh, I, was, I was telling Liz before we started recording, I know within like five minutes, uh, somebody's <laughs> going to be a good guest. It's like, oh, yeah, she's neurotic. <laughs> she'll, she'll be perfect. She's self-aware. She's had uh, some relationship uh, difficulties. And I, and I was uh, reading in uh, something that your your PR person had sent that you've dealt with uh, dyslexia and panic attacks. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I'm very open about being dyslexic. I was diagnosed when I was in the third grade, so I've talked about that a lot, and I'm open about it. And then, um, I don't know, I now know that I probably started having panic, atta- panic attacks when I was probably like in elementary school and is probably the reason I quit doing gymnastics. Like I was probably having them during competitions and stuff. And, but I didn't know that I had anxiety. I didn't know that I was having panic attacks or even what they were until I was probably like 25. What did you name them or think before? You just, you just think you're a loser. You just think you can't handle things. Like I, I come from a very, like a family of just kind of like chaotic, crazy people. So I just, I think, uh, you know, especially when it was in the aspect of a competition, like people call it nerves. So maybe it was nerves like in my Mm -hmm. mind. But like I, I really don't know. I don't know what I thought they were. I just knew that I would freak out and I would fall or I was always very emotional. So I cried a lot. I was always very scared. I didn't like being alone. So like even now when I have a panic attack, um, I have this fear that someone's going to hurt me and somebody that's like literally someone's in the room with me i'll be in a bathroom stall by myself having a panic attack that someone's in the bathroom and they're gonna hurt me nobody else is in the bathroom or sometimes i'll be driving in the middle of driving i have not gotten out of my car you know nothing felt weird or whatever but i'll just have this feeling that someone's in the car and they're gonna hurt me so now i'm having a panic attack while driving so it's like i i think now understanding that as an adult that that's one of the things now i can trace it back and be like oh yeah i would have these like kind of irrational fears that something bad was going to happen or somebody's going to hurt me and then I would have, you know, pan- you know, uh, heart palpitations and 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 get like just like um um like just overwhelmed and like start crying and just like all these kind of things that now I have a name for it 
and an understanding of it. And they still happen, but not nearly as often. And I know how to kind of self-soothe or at least calm down mm-hmm. a little bit and and be that outside person that, that takes care of it. What are some of the things you use to self-soothe? Even just naming it takes away like 20%. Just being like, this is a panic attack. Um, I think that... you think it to yourself or do you say it out loud or... It depends on where I am. Do you write it on a vision board? I write it on a vision board. I'm just like, this is one of your best panic attacks. I'm so proud of you. Um, I would say, you know, if I'm with somebody, I'll be like, I'm having a panic attack. If I'm alone, I can like literally be like, this This is a panic attack. These are the signs. We've done this before. And describe physically and mentally what you're experiencing in that moment. You, you have a bit describing you're afraid somebody's going to hurt you. Yeah. So like I would say my basically both my mind and like my body feel like um, uh, like almost like I've I've run a race. You know what I mean? Like that level of exhaustion and that fight or flight that I, you know, some like somebody almost hit us in the car when we were driving over here. They they went around even though it wasn't a turn lane. And then they were a big truck that had something in the back and literally almost like took us out like five minutes ago. And it was that kind of like, ah! so you're both like angry and you're scared. We all, all my entire family looked at them to like be like, who's this fucking, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, who are these people? Um, so it's that kind of fight or flight, but nothing has happened. That's where it's like crazy. It's one thing to have a panic attack after you, like somebody almost attacked you. It's another thing to having a panic attack like the last one i um not the last one but the biggest one i remember that i just didn't understand why it even happened i went to the movies with my buddy burkash saw a movie not a scary movie not even that great of a movie it was one of those things like i couldn't wait to shit on it with my friend but i had to pee so he went to the bathroom i went to the bathroom you went to see panic room yeah yeah (laughs) so i i go into this bathroom it's an it was like a like an early evening movie on like a tuesday or something so we're talking about like getting out at like 6 p.m and I'm alone in this bathroom. I shut the door and I immediately feel like someone's in the bathroom and they're going to hurt me. I start like having heart palpitations. I get really scared. I cannot pee now. Like I refuse to like pull down my pants because I was like, this is this is how it's this is the vulnerability. This is where it ends. Yeah. So I'm freaking out. And so then I leave the bathroom, but I still feel scared. So this movie theater was like kind of in a basement. So I stand in the middle of the steps like a child waiting for my buddy Burkash to come. Mm-hmm. And he finds me literally like crying and shaking on the stairs. And he's like, what's going on? I was like, I'm having a panic attack, but I'm just like, I'm not okay. So he's like, can you move? And I was like, no. So we just stood on the stairs <laughs> for like 10 minutes. Finally, we went upstairs. We went outside. Just like he sat with me. He held my hand, which was like really nice. And he's not that kind of guy. He's one of my best friends but he's not a like he's not a comforting person but he knew i was like a mess and then i think he walked me to the train and he kept being like i'll put you in a car i was like i don't want to be in a car and like sometimes just doing something normal kind of helps you get out of it and i think the last thing i want to do weirdly enough the subway doesn't feel trapped to me i know that sounds really i know that sounds crazy (laughs) hilarious but think of it this way like i'm around a bunch of people we're all having our lives and nobody really knows anything about each other and it's going to be fine you know what i mean like i can't tell you how many times some of the worst information has been given to me before i got on the train but it's like you can't freak out because there's all this other chaos around you and we're all just kind of like pogs you know going to where we're we're going as opposed to you're in a car and now you're with this stranger and you're it just feels so there's something about the 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 singular uh, person me, threat. Yeah, it kind of makes me feel as opposed to if something bad happened. Like I, I've, I've um, passed out on the train. Like a, you know, whatever blood sugar, whatever uh, tunnel vision passed out, and I woke up to like literally three women being like, "Are you okay?" One woman stayed with me. She walked me to my sister's place because I luckily was like I was at a train station that wasn't too mm-hmm. far from her. Like 
whatever you feel about New Yorkers, like we're not that bad. Pe- you know what I mean? Like we're not friendly, right. but we're not bad people. Right. So, so there is something about like, I don't know, knowing that almost there's, and maybe it's like the numbers, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. there's 50 people in a, in a train car, you know, that's got to be enough. Pe- one person's got to be like, I've had panic attacks. You know what I mean? Right. So I took the train home and just even like the, it, it being a, sh- and it's like less time by myself. I don't know, but like more and more being around others. The other trick I do is um, I, I have them while driving a lot, especially because I drive late at night and um, I'll know I'm having a panic attack, but it actually is too scary to stop because it's like 2 a.m. and you're mm-hmm. on the road and I'm a tiny woman. So I'll call a friend just to be like, hey, I'm really tired. Can we just talk? And they'll be like, yeah. And I'll be like, tell me about your day. And just them talking and me not talking about it, just like being distracted will kind of help calm me and like get me out of that head. That's amazing. Did you discover that yourself? I feel like I did because it was like, I think at the time I was too embarrassed slash maybe didn't fully know what was happening. You know, think of it this way. The amount of time, the amount of panic attacks I've had. And it's the same scenario. You feel a little ridiculous that, you you know, I only have a couple of friends. So you're just going to call the same person and be like, hey, I think someone's in the car and going to murder me. OK, well, did you call the police? Well, I know it's not true. So right. so it's just like it, it rather than say that scenario, it's much easier to be like, hey, I'm really tired. If you could just I'd rather hear about your day and catch up. And that would be really helpful to me. And then nobody needs to know that I'm having a panic attack. I seem like an awesome friend. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a win win. Yeah. When was the the first time that you could name it as a panic attack? God, um, it's funny because like so mental illness runs in both sides of my family. So I I understood I understood enough about mental illness in my family to be scared of it. In the sense that, like, I was always wait- waiting for, like, the foot to drop and for, like, me to be, like, this, like, stereotypical level of crazy that my grandmothers were that, you know, eventually ended their lives. So there's a part of me that I knew enough and I researched enough at a young age to know that to be scared of it. But I didn't know what I was looking to be scared of and I didn't know what I was looking for as an aspect of um, both mental illness and mental health. So it's weird, like – um it's like, you know, when like somebody's picking you up and you're like, I'm, you know, most people, they're going to come down this street, so I'm going to look that way. But then they took some back route you've never heard of. And it's that, that's what it kind of felt like. So it's like I was always looking to like for this literally lose my mind, end up in a mental hospital level of like mental illness when really there was all these little signs of mm-hmm. like, you know, anxiety and uh, panic attacks and just all this other OCD I probably have like all these other kind of like little things that you know kind of built on top of each other and it was making my life difficult but it wasn't this big thing that I was looking out for right. and I feel like I missed it. So um in general I was which is you know interesting cuz my brother got diagnosed with uh, bipolar 1 when he was 19 and he did have that big like saw things heard things ended up in mental hospitals so it was also interesting to be like oh we were right to be scared (laughs) like you know what i mean like it is in our genetics um so uh i think i just never felt comfortable and i would have these freakouts and they were just considered freakouts i was just you know i always considered myself this chaotic kind of can't calm down person i think what happened is I was self-medicating 
with weed. I would smoke pot. I was a big pothead when I was a teenager. Then I stopped doing it for a couple of years. And then when I started to get sad and things were hard with college and after college or whatever, I started to get back into it. But I was like a different person. And I hear this a lot, like smoking weed in my teenage years calmed me. And I, to the point where I thought I was a chill person, but really it was drugs. <laughs> I love that. It really makes me laugh when I was, I used to tell people I was chill and that's the funniest thing to me. So in some ways I self-medicated myself as a teenager and it worked. But then as I got older, I stopped for a while. And then as I got, went back to it, I don't know if physiologically or I don't know enough. I'm not sciencey and smart enough to know, but something changed. And I've heard it's happened to a lot of people where it just didn't hit the same. And I don't, and I don't know if it was different weed or me being different, but I, it never was relaxing ever again. And so now I was starting to have these super panic attacks. So think normal panic attacks. I didn't know what they were, but then I was having these like, ah, like freak outs, like literally like thought I had to go to the hospital, thought I was having a heart attack, like whatever a panic is, attack is on times 20 because I was high and that the re and this is how I've realized in general researching and figuring out what things are is calming to me so I was having this crazy panic attack my boyfriend was out of town um also was a recovering alcoholic so like he knew I would smoke weed but like I was very respectful of this part where like I didn't do it around him and I didn't tell him about it because you know I didn't want to affect his sobriety but I still partaked so he was out of town I partaked too much (laughs) and had this crazy panic attack and I felt like I couldn't call him and so then I'm doing all this research about, like, what is this? Like, am I really having a heart attack? And it's a very old bit I have about having a heart attack. I mean, having a panic attack while high. But actually, that horrible situation is what made me learn about it and made me start to kind of understand um, my issues. And um, when I finally went to therapy years later, and she was like, well, you have generalized anxiety disorder. And I was like, what's that? And she starts breaking it down. I was like, yes, I do. Like, there was, like, no fighting like other things she'd be like, well, I think you have this. And I'd be like, no. And I would fight it for years. But that I was like, it's nice to have a label. And that makes me really feel better. Nice. Yeah, it really, really does. Because really nice. you feel you feel alone. You feel like you feel like a freak. You feel like there's something wrong with you. You feel like you can't. And then, of course, as you start talking about it, everybody's like, oh, yeah, I feel that way, too. Or, oh, you know, my mom used to be like that. And, oh, I have a friend that was like that. And this is what she did. And all of a sudden you have a community just for being like, hey, sometimes I freak out and have these like issues. And like I said, by naming it, understanding it, building tools around it, I A, have them less. B, I know how to kind of almost make sure I don't have them, not all the time, because some just come out of nowhere. But also when I do have them, I am able to to cut down the time about half, about halfway, and I'm able to like be there for myself in a way that I never thought I could. That's amazing. Why why are you laughing? No, I just it's kind of funny. I don't really talk about it. It's just it it is interesting to be like, oh, yeah, I remember not knowing what it Mm -hmm. was and being scared as a kid to being like super scared when I was having like the high ones to being like, yeah, they suck. They don't feel great. I hate when they have them, especially when I'm driving. Those are the scariest ones. But now I'm just like, you dumb brain. Like, I just get mad at my brain. Yeah. Uh, Talk about your your grandmothers. They're story how how did they take their lives both of them did oh i'm so sorry yeah i they they both died before i was born so it's actually kind of how my parents met so um my father's mother committed suicide um i want to i want to say my dad was like 20 mm-hmm. and then i 
year later, uh, he had, he kind of knew my mom. I think he, I don't completely know the story. I think he either dated one of her roommates or he was friends with one of her roommates. But then a year later, my mother's mother committed suicide and he had heard about it. And clearly he had just gone through that. He was still mourning that loss. So he basically reached out to be comforting and to be a friend. Hmm. And they became friends and they started dating and then they had too many kids. Many? Uh, they had five. Yeah. There's five of us. Where are you? I'm number two. Yeah. So. Also known as lost in the shuffle. You know what? There's more lost ones. I'll be honest. I made <laughs> by being a comic. I made room for myself. You know, yeah. you get loud and get annoying. Um, uh, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of us. But I, I think for me, you know, over time, I oh, I cannot remember a time where I didn't know about it. I knew about it very young that my grandmother's committed suicide. I knew very young uh, that mental illness run, ran in our family. I found out very young how they committed suicide, which both of them, I awful. Um, in really sad ways and I think really aggressive ways. You know what I mean? Like it's one thing like to the point where like we are a very dark family. We make dark jokes. We say, can I curse? Am I allowed? Oh, yeah. We say fucked up stuff all the time. My mom's favorite jokes are dead baby jokes. Like we used to tell like those, you know what I mean? Like, Mm. but like, I mean, she used to be like, oh my God, I'm going to hell. But as she's gotten further away from Catholicism, she was just like, I look to find out who my friends are. Like she was like, you know what I mean? So we, we make dark jokes like even the point that i don't know there might be some people that don't like the word crazy and feel like that might be demeaning i don't see it that way especially with mental illness being so much in our family and and i just the same way i look at dyslexia or look at any other kind of disability in some sense physical you know mental um um uh, what what have you there's ways that you can find it to be empowering and there's ways for you to find that there can be an advantage. I'm not saying that doesn't take time and effort and that isn't, um, can be exhausting. You know what I mean? Where you have to find the, the, the benefits of stuff where everybody else able-bodied or able-mind or whatever can just walk into life and, you know, Mm -hmm. this is who I am. You're welcome. But I think in my family specifically, we have found a way to, uh, not let it, uh, stop us, be honest about it, and then also joke about it. And through that joking, there's been a lot of healing. So we make suicide jokes. Like, we just do. Like, and I've talked to my mom about it, probably not so much my dad, to be like, is this okay? And my mom's like, I'm fine with it. And my, both my parents have been suicidal. You know, they mm-hmm. it's it's been a fear. I've had my own issues with, with it. Like, it has been... A deep fear of mine as well as I think you attract people that are similar to mine so I've had friends that are suicidal like I it's not that I don't take it seriously I take it incredibly seriously and it's just also such a part of my life that to not joke about it is to pretend like it's not happening and I think in all my humor it's like well we might as well talk about it and I think Mm -hmm. in talking about it you understand it so the only joke I've never, the only joke I ever stopped doing, I had a joke about how my parents met, which is because they met, because both their mothers committed suicide, and that's so dark and devastating. I thought maybe that's how I'm going to meet my husband, and I had this whole <laughs> joke about like meeting him during a car crash or something crazy. And I remember my mom's super supportive. I have jokes about her being abusive and all these kind of very honest jokes about her. And she goes, and I asked her, I go, is that okay? And she goes, you know what? I really miss my mom. She's like, I don't know if I love that joke. And I was like, all right, it's out. Like, I never want to make my mom. And my mom never really talks. Like, she doesn't really mm-hmm. talk about her mom. She never. Her, she lost her dad um, to a heart attack when she was 10. So, she, you know, she misses her dad. So there's that understanding that my parents miss their parents. But also, 
we're weirdly very okay with death. Both of my parents are veterinarians as well. And I've always said my mom oh, professionally man. kills cats for a living. So, yeah. you know, I and think... And there's a high suicide rate among veterinarians. Do you know what's so crazy? I just learned that recently, and I did not know that. So, And, our, and dentists. Dentists make sense. Mouths are weird. Yeah. I that told, And people don't consider you a real doctor. Like, that right. one makes sense to me. The, I, that's where you start to wonder, like, does, like... I this is my theory, by the way. People that become veterinarians aren't the great communicators to humans. Couldn't agree more. So, and I would put myself in that boat, and my parents in that boat, and so many others. I have friends that are veterinarians. So you're not the best communicator to people. You feel closer to animals, but when distress happens, you don't really have a pathway to real communication with people. So it makes you even takes what you already have. It makes you even more um, uh, pulled away from your community yeah. and your favorite living things are dying. Yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and you are putting people's best friends to sleep yeah. or if something goes wrong and you've accidentally killed someone's best friend. So I, I think both genetically as well as situationally, as well as maybe being a vet and the fact that my parents Never went to therapy, never went to any. Wow. They did nothing. Just like some real 70s shit, like just under the rug. They had each other, which I think is beautiful, but I don't know how much they talked about it. I really don't. And even now, it's still hard to like have them talk about it outside of a I miss my parents kind of mm-hmm. sense. But I don't know. I feel like me and my siblings have talked more about it. And like I said, it's this like other degree. And we've had like cousins and other people commit suicide. And like I said, there's we've all had our mental health issues in our family. So I think now four out of five of us are in therapy, which I think is awesome. And, you know, my mom, when my brother got really sick um, and he was in out of mental hospitals, he went like she went twice to somebody but she like was like this isn't for me but i was very proud that she tried and then i think my dad went a couple of times to somebody and also was like this isn't for me and so i do think they both need it i i do have i have seen some growth i actually think my brother being in and out of mental hospitals was weirdly a lot of growth for them i am assuming incredibly triggering because they he was eliciting very similar signs oh cuz like my dad told me his mom would be kind of okay and then she would start peeking out the windows this is like in the 50s thinking like you know 50s and 60s that somebody's spying on them and just having all these weird things and she would kind of be bedridden then she would go into mental hospitals have electric shock therapy she'd come back seem kind of normal and then it would all start over again um my mom's given like less details but um you know also struggled with it and so it's 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 deep-seated i think that's why i am very aware more so now than ever about my mental health and even my physical health and how that all kind of ties together. And I don't know. I'm, I'm very grateful that I'm in a position that I'm open about it and that I talk about it because I think there's a lot of people that are like, kind of like my parents or maybe even further down that there's just like this full fledged embarrassment and even my brother, I can sense my brother a little bit because he takes meds um, every day. And, like, I handed him his meds. He's like, could you not put them on the table? And I was like, okay. I didn't realize. I'm, I'm, I take, like, 18 vitamins. Like, I look – I was like, if anybody looks crazy, it's me. <laughs> They're all labeled and stuff like that. I was like, you take two pills. I'm taking, like, 16. But, okay, that's your boundaries. I respect it. But for the most part, like, we're able to 
understand it and joke about it and be there for each other. You talked about your mom being abusive. Are you comfortable talking about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I have jokes about it. I've talked a little bit about it. My mom's apologized. I mean, my thing is this. I don't blame my mother at all. I I once wrote an essay years ago that a few short years after my mom lost her own mom, she became a mom and how crazy that has to be. Like, no support. You know, my mom didn't have any parents. My dad um, had his dad, but he, his siblings were, he's one of five as well, and he was the oldest, so his siblings were younger. He's working all these jobs. He was an alcoholic. So, like, his grand, his dad was got his own thing, and that wasn't really a resource. So, like, my parents had kids without really having any kind of guidance or help, and they did the best they could. Like, I think, truthfully... I always I feel bad. I think when I was younger, I would say my mom was crazy and I really didn't like my mom when I was younger. I kind of started to see my mom as a person in my early 20s and made a conscious effort to get to know her and to to connect with her. I don't know where that came from. It was the best decision I ever made. My mom's awesome. My mom is an incredible person, one of my favorite people. And I think what I feel bad about and, you know, I was a child, but, like, she was overwhelmed. She would have been overwhelmed. I mean, put herself through vet school, um, um, uh, um, had five kids, did not want five kids. And, like, she's Catholic, but she wasn't that Catholic. If she was with anybody else, there would – you know what I mean? Like, my, my brother Greg is the last one. I mean, he came out and the, t- the tubes were t- – they could not have been tied quicker. <laughs> Um, so she definitely didn't want five kids. My dad is a go-getter. My dad is, I love my dad, but he's a terrible listener. And, you know, you put down a boundary and my dad goes, okay, yeah, of course. And then just blows right past it. Like you just see it. And even now as an adult and I get along with my dad, but I go, no, I go, no, there's no like meal or deal around. The answer is no, I don't want to do this. And if it makes you mad at me and you don't talk to me for a couple of months, I'm fine with that because this is a reasonable no. So where did you learn that? Oh, that was therapy. A lot. That's ten years. Because that is not something that comes naturally to somebody. No, that is climbing a fucking mountain. And it's still and it's still hard because I'm I still struggle with people pleasing. I I was I raised my little brothers. I was raised to be a helper. I was raised to be the person that fills in the gaps and I still like that aspect of me and I'm still a helper and I'm still somebody that deeply cares about people and goes out of their way but I also say no a lot like I have a girlfriend right now she's really struggling she has um uh she got di- she's uh, had issues like physical issues for years but then she got another diagnosis on top of it because of covid and she's on a million medications she's struggling she had to move back home she is having a rough go and we talk Every day in some capacity, whether I call her, whether we text, whether we leave voice memos, I make sure she's okay. She's, you know, working out this medication. She's working on her own projects for work, all doing this while being sick. And she's taught me a lot about friendship, but she's one of these people that the last couple of months I talked to her every day, but she knows I'm stressed out of my mind. And I'm just like, hey, sweetie, I'm going to be at MIA for a couple of days. You can text me, you can leave me messages, but I don't know what I'm going to get back to. And she's like, absolutely, I got you. And she'll be like, hey, checking in. If you can't get back to me, don't worry. And we have this communication where I'm just like, why can't we be in love? Like, why can't we date? You're so amazing. Because we just get it. Like, we know when we're stressed, we're both, you know, independent, entrepreneurial, like, people. But we both have had our issues. And she's even, she's taught me so much about being a better listener. But she's also taught me that, like, I'll go on tour. And I'm a pretty decent friend. But when I go on tour, I'm 
tired. I'm like, I'm getting up at 6 a.m. I'm not, I'm asleep until 10 or 11 kind of person, but I'm getting up at six, flying, I'm doing shows, I'm doing all this stuff on my computer. I'm a mess for a couple of days to a couple of weeks. And I would like almost, you know how people go off social media? They're like, I'm going off Instagram Mm -hmm. for a month for mental health issues. And you're like, good for you. I've learned to do that with my friends. Hey, I'm a mess in October. I will see you in November. Like Mm -hmm. genuinely, if you need me, by all all means reach Mm -hmm. out. But like, I don't know if I can be the Liz you know in October. And it's been a game changer. Because even so, like my sister will call me up, like we're really close. And she'll call me up and she'll be like, hey, do you have a minute? And I go, "Um, I don't know if I can today. I was like, I don't, I'm like, I'm really stressed. I might be curt with you, which is only going to upset you more. And I know her friends. I'm like, call, ta- call Tina or Blanche. I think, I think they you go to second and third rung. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. And she knows the same where she's like, I can't. And I was like, all right, I'll call Adrian. Like, you know what I mean? Like we know we're so close that we know who our other people are to be like, I can't be number one today. So I think therapy really taught me how to, advocate for myself in a way that I'm still trying to teach my mom. I It really bugs me that, like, I don't think my parents are innately bad people at all. I think my parents are incredible people, both of them. But they're damaged, and they know they're damaged. And I think my dad went into self-help books, and I think that's helped a lot. But I think that's made him feel successful, and I think it's made him feel empowered. But I don't know if it's made him feel connected to people. And my mom, on the other hand, I don't – she doesn't read those books. I don't know what – I don't know if it's just – being loving and showing up for my mom or just the fact that I'm unfilteredly honest with my mom in a way that I never thought I could be. And does she always respond? Is she, you know, you don't come to my mom to cry. She'll listen, but she doesn't know how to handle it. Like I remember during the pandemic, I was like freaking out because I was like, am I ever going to work again? And, da, 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 da. and things were just starting to go well in my career. And I just started like hysterically crying on the phone with my mom. And she was like, okay okay. Like she didn't know what to say. And I was like, oh, I'm not mad at her. This is, this is where she is. And I can meet her where she is. And did it make you sad though? It doesn't make me sad because there's so many places that I never thought me and my mom would connect. Like my mom comes to any show that she can come to. My mom loves watching me hear, like watching and hearing my jokes. Me and my siblings are super honest about like drinking and drugs, like past and Mm -hmm. present. And my mom's just like, be safe. Like there's like no judgment in my mom's heart. And I don't know if I would have found that person if I didn't openly just try to and like and then I also accept my mom where she is my mom isn't the person you cry to my mom isn't but like if you just want to have fun with my mom if you want to tell my mom about your day you know if you want to um talk about science or you know my mom's incredibly smart like books like I was doing all this research during the pandemic for a script I was reading um and it was about um abortion clicks uh, underground abortion clinics in the 60s so I'm reading all these like underground abortion clinic books all these feminism books all this stuff about like the women's lib and I'm telling her about it and she's like oh what's that book and she started reading all the books so we started having like a book club which was actually really helpful in me writing the script and then there was also like some doctor elements so i sent it to her to help me with some of the doctor stuff so i didn't seem like a moron and it was like one of the coolest bonding experiences i've had with my mom and it's all because we just kind of meet each other where we are my mom still freaks out my mom is still you know has her things that have made me scared of her when i was a child but i also can go hey i've been there I understand what she's feeling now. And I also can go, this isn't a woman that's crazy. This is a woman that's overwhelmed. And maybe she doesn't have the tools and the skills for it. And I wish I had that language and that empathy 
when I was younger. Because before, when I was a teenager, I would write her off. And that must have felt sad, too, is that you're giving your all, you're doing your best, and now these kids are writing you off. And she had every reason to be sad, and she handled it the best way she could. I mean, my mom was scary when I was a kid, and I I think I do— Her anger. Oh, so scary. So scary. And I, I, the best way I can describe her, and even how I actually used it with my brother, because when my brother was um, uh, having psychotic breaks, he wasn't. My, my brother is a teddy bear. My brother is the kindest, sweetest, funniest, smartest person you're going to ever meet. But when he was having psychotic breaks, he was mean, and he was cold, and he was scary. And so I, I had to put him, I had to be like, that's crazy Sam, and that's Sam. Those are two different people. So almost the same way in understanding my mother, it was this is overwhelmed mom and this is my mom. And I'm not going to throw away my mom because of overwhelmed mom. And I'm not going to throw away Sam because of crazy Sam. And I imagine you couldn't do that if you hadn't learned boundaries. A hundred percent. Because the truth of the matter is still when Sam, Sam is my favorite. Sam is amazing. He's like just the best person. But he was scary. And before he would go into hospitals and stuff, you know, things would get bad and da, 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 da. And sometimes because he didn't take his meds, sometimes it was before we even knew what was going on. And I was like, Mom, you cannot treat him like Sam. Like that's because she's like, well, I don't I told him he doesn't have to go to the hospital if he if he behaves like, oh, what are you talking about? Like this isn't you're not talking to like a real fully functioning person. You're asking someone to behave that doesn't have the mental capacities to do whatever that is. And I'm so scared that something's going to happen to him or something's going to happen to you guys. So I think understanding that it was a, a, a life or death situation with my my brother and his hmm. uh, mental f- capacity, it's the same with my mom. My mom got scary. My uh, me, My whole... We've had to, because there's a bunch chunks of memory that are gone, but like my childhood's pieced together with like Emily remembers a little bit over here and Teresa remembers a little over here. And then I would tell a memory and I was like, I don't remember that. And Sam's like, I remember that. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's how we've kind of put together our childhood because some of it was really scary and, and really awful and really hard to understand. But I don't, I don't feel anything but love for my parents. I cannot mm-hmm. imagine if I was in the same ser- scenario as my parents doing any better of a job, probably a worse job, <laughs> if yeah. I'm being truthful. And I think that um, maturity and understanding how people function in certain situations doesn't mean that's who they are. Um, I think uh, trauma. What's that quote? It's like one of my favorite quotes. Um, you're you're not responsible for your your trauma. That's not your fault, but you are responsible for healing it. And have my parents done the best job? Not exactly. But they are open to it. Like the amount of times I've yelled at my dad or told my dad you're wrong and my dad is not the person you tell you're wrong and he's gone, okay, all right. And it's given him something to think about because I've there's not a lot of people that talk truth to power to my father. That's That's huge for any parent to be able to even consider. Yeah that they're wrong i mean the worst from your kid from your kid i mean i think most people who have uh complicated relationships with their parents the biggest gift they can get is for a parent be able to take something in and that's why i respect both my parents does change always come with it absolutely not but is there a level of 
respect. Like the amount of times I, go, I would tell my dad, I don't want to talk about that. And then he'd bring it up again. And I go, dad, if you bring it up again, I'm going to hang up. And he goes, okay. Okay. And then we don't talk about it anymore. And I go, all right. Is it the full change that I would want for both of us? Absolutely not. But is this somebody that's understanding that this is no longer something I'm going to tolerate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, you have to be okay with minor growth. I think in everybody's mind, whether it's somebody they're dating, somebody that they're friends with, somebody they have a, like this relationship they feel completely tied to, you want this over. You want you want storybook rom com, you know, mm. arc of a script change. They were this, and now they're this, and they're never going to be that again. It's just not realistic. No. It can be there, but even I feel like I've changed a million times and I'm still not where I want to be and I still make mistakes. But the truth of the matter is, is that I am open to understanding it and I can call it as it is. I can apologize when I make mistakes and I can try to figure out tools at the very least to minimize mm-hmm. the damage, if not completely prevent it. Yeah. I think you know the tool that you mentioned, being willing to hang up, being willing to leave a room or leave... You know, a house, a situation, whatever it is in that moment is one of the greatest tools that you can have because so many of our issues and uh, wreckage that we create, whether it's in that moment or it's later because we compartmentalized it, is not being willing to escape from a situation because I don't know about you, but when I feel cornered in my life, uh, I... I'm like a wounded animal mm-hmm. that doesn't want to be touched. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of um, mistakes are made in the sense of saying something you don't actually mean or uh, doing uh, ir- irreparable damage to a relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think one of my survival techniques as a kid that I has benefits but sometimes it also ruins relationships is I shut down. I can easily shut down. Mm-hmm. If I'm triggered, I get quiet. I like literally remove like my whole body, like my whole essence is gone from my body. And I I absolutely survived my childhood that way. I have gotten through a lot of awful situations because of it. And it is still 30% beneficial. But I also see how it's, um, there's diminishing returns with that tactic yeah. and how I, it's been, hard for me to connect. So now a tool that helped me during triggering times is no longer a tool and you have to upgrade your tools. And I think more and more I think about it that way. Like the way I kind of see it is like shutting down when I was a kid with somebody that would I would cut up wood and I would put it in the um, the fireplace to keep warm. And it was absolutely a great skill. But now I'm cutting up wood for a furnace. Like it's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. It's not helping me anymore. And at some point, you don't need to cut up the wood anymore. So I, I've had to, sh- I've had to learn that while I've navigated some really difficult situations on my own, well, they aren't serving me any well, any, any, they're not serving me well anymore. And so with my father specifically, I have to go. He probably is never going to change, and this is who he is. And there's so many wonderful things about my father that I appreciate, but there's also aspects that I have to acknowledge that he's. He's had plenty of opportunities, and he's a smart person, and this is where he is, and you have to meet them where they are. With you, boundaries. With boundaries. Yeah. And you also have to I, – I, I'm also of the complete – not every relationship doesn't matter if it's 
parents, siblings, uh, husbands, wives, whatever. I don't care. You can leave. You should leave. I do not think any relationship is like, well, that's your dad or that's your sister. I don't care. And it's such a Catholic. Oh, yeah. And the fact that the amount of times my dad was like, blood is thicker than water. I was like, first of all, you need to finish that phrase. That's like not the full phrase. Also, I don't care. What's the full phrase? It's it's something like blood is thicker than water, but something like it literally is just like, but this is where like I have a bad memory as a dyslexic person, but it's like not, um, it cuts itself. Like, you know how they say like the apple, um. Uh, Doesn't fall far from the tree. No, not that one. Um, um, Apple a day. (laughs) No, no, no. no, Too many apple ones. (laughs) It just couldn't Um, be that annoying. No, they used it with cops. The... um, a rotten one one rotten apple doesn't spoil the bunch mm-hmm. but if you finish the phrase it's like but it can ruin the lot or whatever like it, like it actually is like it's like we cut it down to the point where we just found the part that we like but it's not yes. truthful i i think family is important i think family can be beautiful i also think it can be toxic and it can ruin your life and i have friends where i'm like you don't need them they're holding you emotionally back mentally back you know um career wise back work with it but if you can't set boundaries or they don't respect boundaries, then the then you put down the harshest one, which is that you're not in my life. So, you know, there's definitely different people in my life that have used the tactic of the silent treatment or just not being there. And then they want to come back. And I go, you can come back, but it's not going to be the same relationship. And I don't owe you anything. Because if we're not going to talk and we're not going to talk through this, then you're a person that's um, uh, not fully there. And you're not a person that is... I can't trust you with my feelings if I tell you this is how I want to be respected and then you bounce for a couple of months and then decide to be back in my life. I wouldn't accept that from a man. So why am I accepting that from somebody in my life, anybody else in my life? Talk about uh, how the issues have presented themselves in your uh, love life. So like I said, I think I had a really – I a really unhelpful tool of when I was triggered or when I felt like I couldn't talk about something, I would just shut down. So I was this person that maybe you didn't have a lot of conflicts with, but you also didn't have a lot of connection with. And so I remember my first boyfriend kind of bringing up a lot of this stuff and I couldn't hear it. Like I couldn't acknowledge that there might be something mentally wrong with me. I couldn't acknowledge that I wasn't the best girlfriend. Like I was so defensive and I had so many walls up. Were you were you perceiving it as an attack rather than uh, somebody trying to hundred percent. And 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 uh and a a tap on the shoulder was an attack. Like that's how like fragile I was. So my ex was in AA, had wasn't in therapy, but like had just more of a self awareness than I did at that point and was very kind about everything he said and I could not hear it. So when he finally like was done, like could not handle it anymore, rightly so, it devastated me because it felt like I did everything. I was a great girlfriend and why am I being broken up with? Um, And he had, I had started going to therapy towards the end of our relationship. Both him and my best friend from high school were kind of like, you don't seem okay and you should get help. And I was smart enough to know that if my two favorite people were like, you don't seem all right, that I should listen. And I'm grateful for whatever aspect of that is inside of me. So I went, it helped to kind of just like, purge and like just talk about all my fears and just dump all my sadness but she didn't really do anything she just kind of listened and she just wasn't that great of a therapist so I think it helped like 10% and got me there but I stopped seeing her after a couple of months then the breakup happened I was devastated and depressed and in that depression I made some choices that didn't align with my morals and my uh, how I saw myself and it scared me 
And that's what got me into therapy. So not even just being depressed and heartbroken. It was I was making choices that I know weren't in line with who I wanted to be. And I really didn't like myself uh, more so than I realized later on that I really already didn't like myself. And so I started seeing a therapist when I was 25 and it was life changing. Genuinely, I always say that breakup was the best thing that ever happened to me. I was depressed for two years. I was even more unbearable for two years. (laughs) But that got me into therapy. It got me to... And everything that he had said about me, my therapist had brought up. And it was such a weird awakening to be like, oh, I could have changed for free. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like, But I wasn't ready. And I, I couldn't. And, you know, I'm not saying my ex was amazing was perfect in his own right there was definitely his issues but they couldn't even be talked about because i couldn't even meet him in any real emotional capacity you can't see it in that moment it's like if you've never seen color before and somebody's trying to say can't you see red your whole world has been black and white as you you can't imagine it i don't have the language i don't i don't have the i don't have anything to set me up to to speak about it so the first couple of years of therapy was finding out what sucked about me it was a lot of crying um i used to buy my therapist tissues to be like replenishing um it was hard it was it was probably one of the hardest things i've ever done which is just learn everything that sucks about me and then what's paralyzing is you learn everything that sucks about you but you don't have the ability to stop it so you're now aware of it but you can't change it like you feel like you don't have any tools and you're still doing it so now you're aware of how much you suck which is a worse place to be in if if i'm being honest so it feels like you're pulling the rubber band back and you're just you feel so tense and uncomfortable but what's amazing is as i started to build up tools and work on stuff and i started to see myself not doing like feeling things but not acting on them or saying things and apologizing and like more so in in the beginning it feels like you are putting a cork in a volcano yeah it's so hard yeah and i think sometimes i i would be uncomfortable and everybody like you handled that so well i'm like i need to go home before i yell at someone like you feel like but now i just i like myself i'm proud of myself i'm the person i always wanted to be you know again still learning and blah 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 but i think old liz in relationships was if if i don't show myself they won't they won't know who i really am therefore i can still be loved and new liz is i'm not for everybody i know that i'm a lot but i know i can show up fully and if you like who i am showing up fully i'm pretty awesome so I think that's where, and I have the tools, and I can and I don't. Get, I can apologize. I can stop myself before I do stuff. I can take myself out of situations. I can talk to people about stuff. I can be honest about what my needs and hopes and dreams are, and also be open to other people's needs and hopes and dreams. Like I don't even know how I had friends before. I'm so grateful because I've had friends since elementary school, high school, college, early stand-up comedy. I still have maintain those friends because i think i was a people pleaser but also a nice person and i feel fortunate that i was nuts but i was nice and now i like to think that i'm like reformed and and the good things about me are able to shine brighter and the things that i wasn't proud of i'm able to help my friends with and other people around me with so that they can also like themselves as much as i do that's so awesome and by the way i think you have the name for your next special nice but nuts (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) A hundred percent. Anything you, you'd like to share before we uh, wrap this up? I would say this. I, I think everybody that goes to therapy, it's almost like a cult a little bit. You're like, therapy changed my life. You should go do it. But it's not that 
easy. I think the hardest thing about therapy is the crappiest you feel, you have to find somebody. It's like it's like being on your deathbed and you're trying to find the best doctor. Like you don't want to get up, you don't want to research, you're feeling crappy. It's like how can you really do due diligence when you're at the worst Mm-hmm. place in your life and that's what sucks about trying to find a therapist most people don't look for it when they're okay or things are a little mm-hmm. shitty they look for it when they're desperate when they're not in the right headspace and so i think you easily give up because you go to one person and you're like this isn't it we all know what connection is even if we're not capable of doing it so there has to be some form of connection with your therapist in the sense that they hear you they push you in the right kind of ways you feel seen you feel safe exactly and I've seen therapists where I'm like, this isn't it. And starting over exhausting. is another level of exhausting. It, it, it's truly like, it's got to be how people feel like in the heart of like COVID when you're tired and somebody's like, all right, you have to go get up and go to the bathroom. And you're like, I'd rather shit the bed at this point. Like right. this is, right. you're asking too much and it doesn't feel like it's that much, but it is. So I think understanding that like any relationship whether it's you know finding a friend finding a partner it's gonna take a little bit of trial and error but you will know when it's right like you will know and and they're also gonna push your boundaries i remember the first couple of years of therapy i hated my therapy I, that's when i knew she had like hit something because we would you know she would laugh at my jokes i felt like a real connection with her she you know she would she definitely pulled things out of me but there would be moments where she like pulled too much and I'd be like, I hate her. Fuck her. She doesn't know. And almost being triggered by her and putting it all on her. When I was mad at her for like days at a time, I was like, oh, oh, no, she might be right. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And now I see that even with friends where I'll be mad at a friend. And I'm like, oh, am I really mad at them? Or do they pinpoint something I wasn't ready to deal with? Right. And so knowing that your therapist is a relationship that's unlike any relationship you've had and is going to take the same kind of and this sucks because dating is hard and finding friends are hard and this is like a different level of hard mm-hmm. with the same level of importance and you know the the template of having somebody who leads you to discoveries about yourself rather than you know accusing you of being something i think a lot of people that have never been to therapy think that a therapist is just going to sit there and judge you and tell you what's wrong with you yeah. rather than helping you discover areas of your life that might need an upgrade that might need some some tools to yeah. deal with it and i don't know about you but the 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 i have never looked forward to a therapy session but i yeah. have always felt better at the end of one and same with support group meetings yeah, yeah. no as they're trying to think of an equivalent it's like how people feel about exercise yeah genuinely you're like i don't i don't want to put on the pants i don't want to go outside i don't you know and then in the middle of it you start to be like um i'm glad i did this and then towards the end you're just like am i better than people like this is crazy like you know (laughs) what i mean like i think i have abs like so i think it's hard to start it's really hard in the middle but i i don't know i'm you're almost grateful for that kind of emotional rock bottom because I was living fine. I was getting through things. I was doing the things I technically wanted to do, but without really any enjoyment or fulfillment. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know. I don't want to go back. Yeah. 
Well, Liz, thanks so much for, for coming by. Your uh, new special is available on YouTube. It's called The Ghost of Academic Future. It's really funny. And uh, keep crushing it, lady. Yeah, yeah. Keep crushing it. Uh, people can find you, uh, on, uh, find you on social media at Liz Mealy, M-I-E-L-E. Yeah. Uh, anything else? Uh, yeah, I um, I also have a book about cats. It's called Why Cats Are Assholes. So I just feel like um, people with uh, our mental capacity love cats. They love animals. I just think yeah. animals are the best. And I am a huge cat lover specifically. So um, if you like a funny book about cats. Well, uh, and do you have a website? Yeah, everything is LizMealy.com. Okay. Yeah, it has cool. all my tour dates and everything. Awesome. Thanks, Liz. Many, many thanks to uh, Liz. Be sure to check uh, her, her stand-up special out. It's really funny. Um, we have the links to all our stuff in the show notes, as we usually do for uh, any guest on the show. Uh, before we take it out with surveys, um, just want to put it out there that if you're thinking of sh- supporting the show in any way, whether it's financially or non-financially, it is greatly appreciated. Uh, you can support us financially uh, by going to uh, our website, metalpod.com, and either becoming a uh doing a one-time donation via PayPal or becoming a monthly donor via Patreon. And sometimes you get bonus content if you do that. Uh, it great, greatly helps the podcast, much needed. Um, you can help us non-financially by uh, hitting this subscribe button. And I, I know you fucking thousand people a day are telling you to do that, but it really does help. It helps bring more advertisers because our downloads are, are higher. Um, you can also help non-financially by spreading the word about the podcast, going online, filling out a survey. All of those things uh, help. I especially love when people fill out the loves survey. Those are like little Christmas gifts to me and the podcast. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who uh, calls herself too passive to say no. Um, She identifies as bisexual. She is 19. She says she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. She writes, I was in a very strange situation recently that I'd greatly appreciate your insight on. Just for some background, I've been with my boyfriend for about a year and a half now. He doesn't mind me fooling around with other girls. Two of my female friends of mine, all 19 years old, and I plan to cam together and fool around online to make some extra cash. 
This was my first time doing anything on camera. My friend had told me that her sugar daddy, who's in his 50s, would host the live video on his account and that he would just watch us. We'd all been drinking before we began camming. As we got more into it, my friend's sugar daddy started to masturbate in front of us with us all on one bed. This eventually led to my friend giving him oral while I gave her oral at the same time. Although I didn't physically touch or really acknowledge him at all, I felt pretty grossed out and violated when this was happening, but I didn't want to make them stop while we had already started camming. I don't know if what I experienced is worth being upset over or if I'm just overreacting. Uh, Thank you for, for sharing that. And, you know, it's not a matter of whether or not something is worth being upset over. It's, did it upset you? Okay, start the process of processing that. You know, whether it's with a therapist or going to a support group, but don't minimize it. Somebody doesn't have to be a culprit for us to be traumatized by something. And so be nice to yourself and give weight to what happened to you and, and start the the process of processing it. And I hope that makes sense. Uh, she's been physically abused and emotionally abused. Any positive experiences with abusers? I wouldn't really consider them abusers. However, I was very uncomfortable. The man was really kind to me. He never tried pushing my boundaries by touching me. and was very understanding when I told him I would only be physical with my friends. He's also told us that we made the most money and had gotten the most views in one session that he's ever done. I was able to pay my bills this month because of this experience darkest thoughts. I've thought about doing this again with the same group and having sex with the man with my friends just to make more money despite being uncomfortable. That does not sound like a good idea. Uh, Darkest secrets. I'm slowly transitioning into sex work, which is my main source of income right now. I can't maintain normal jobs due to my mental health issues. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you, rape fantasies, public sex. I've openly shared these fantasies in a healthy way with my boyfriend. I don't feel much of anything by sharing it. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my boyfriend about how involved the man was with us. I feel horrible for hiding the truth from him. I would have also told my friend that I didn't want that man involved in the first place. What, if anything, do you wish for? I hope I can learn to forgive myself for this. Have you shared these things with others? My boyfriend does not know that I canned with two girls, but doesn't, does know that I canned with two girls, but doesn't know that a man was involved. I'm afraid to tell him because I don't want him to get mad at me and think I cheated on him. I don't know if that's considered cheating. I told a few of my friends about how I was uncomfortable and unaware that the man would be involved, and they mostly just brushed it off and had told me that I should have expected it. Well, that's a shitty thing for, for them to uh, to say, but sadly, uh, not that uncommon uh, an attitude for people to have about about stuff like that. Um, man, you got a lot on your plate emotionally um, dealing with this. And, you know, it, it It might be worth considering whether or not you want to dive into doing more work when even this bit that you've done so far is affecting you negatively. So just my two cents. I really want to avoid, uh, you know, trying to, you know, 
be lecturing about what you shouldn't, shouldn't do with your body. So, um, trying to ride that line between giving my opinion and, uh, mansplaining, uh, what to, what to do with your body. This is from the love survey filled out by cats and coffee. And, uh, they write, I love when I make coffee in the morning and my cat comes prancing in and awaits her morning spoon of homemade whipped cream. (laughs) I love the smell of coffee. It brings a sense of calm and productivity. I love when you walk into a coffee shop and you smell beans being grinded. I love that my cat cannot resist being in the bathroom when I have to poop. Like, what is wrong with you? Do you just love those poop fumes? Ha ha. I love lying my head gently on my cat's belly as she purrs. I love the melted whipped cream foam on top of my morning coffee. I love when my cat plops down full force beside me in bed before we go to sleep. And I love listening to the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Thank you for those. Those are awesome. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Wing Dang Doodle. He identifies as straight. He's in his 20s. He says that he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. He says that he's never been sexually abused. Um, he writes that uh, me and my friends would pull our pants down and touch each other when we were kids in the garden behind our house. We were around five years old, and it stopped around 10-ish. In parentheses, around the time I found out that I can produce this weird white liquid by rubbing my penis back and forth across my hairless forearm. Uh, He's been physically abused and emotionally abused. Uh, He writes constant verbal abuse by parents and some physical whipping and slapping by parents with shoe or belt. Any positive experiences with them? Yes. Parents provide so much, but I hate what they've done to me. Uh, Darkest thoughts. I've always, I always just want to hurt people around me, uh, and then they would notice me. Then they would remember me. Darkest secrets. Uh, I lost my virginity when I was 18 to an escort whom I paid $100 for 15 minutes. This was the first time I touched a boob. Speak, uh, speak about disappointment. 18 years of building up for something that I thought would feel much better. I'm still seeing escorts to, the, to this day. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Watching a beautiful woman getting degraded and face-fucked, especially blondes with nice skin. Seeing the regret in their dead eyes makes me hard. Feels the same uh, without feedback from someone. Uh, I guess that's an answer to to the question, how's sharing that make you feel? Feels the same without feedback from someone. Uh, What, if anything, would you like to... Say to someone you haven't been able to, I'm not as ugly as I look. If you were to know me, you would see that I have some good qualities, not just a fat creep. What, if anything, do you wish for? I don't even know anymore. I once thought that money equals happiness, but now I don't even know. Have you shared these things with others? Nope. Maybe I'll share some with the therapist. How do you feel after writing these things down? Nothing different. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Why are we the way we are? Is it resentment? Question mark. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I think seeing a therapist would be a great idea. You know, it sounds like you've got a lot of built, built up emotions that um, would would really uh, be productive uh, to find a, a healthy outlet for. But thank you. Thank you for sharing that. 
this is from the love survey filled out by Max, and he just simply writes, big men with small dogs. That is such a great one. I fucking love when I see a, just a muscle-bound dude with a chihuahua. Love it. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself fat and stupid. So you know. You know this woman is brimming with self-love and confidence. She identifies as bisexual. Uh, She's in her 20s, says that she was raised in a stable and safe environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, She writes, I had a very unhealthy relationship with my first boyfriend. I had to use sex as a currency for his love and approval. Sometimes he wouldn't even speak to me until we slept together. We dated four years. In our last year, he raped me in a dorm shower, and I still have the image of his stupid green flip-flops against the moldy tiles. From there, I learned I couldn't say no to sex, and I felt in the and in quotes raped unquote many times after, but only through my failure to speak up and say no. My latest ex raped me, but I think if I had said stop, he would have stopped. I was half asleep, though, so it's hard to know if it was really rape. Um, boy, uh, I got to say, the the stuff with your uh, first boyfriend, I mean, you used the word rape, and it sure sounds like it. Um And that is such an unfortunate thing when people, victims, replay things in their head and then put all of the responsibility on themselves for, I should have done this, I should have done that. Well, you know what? Um, The other person should have paid attention to what you were saying or how you were acting and adjusted their behavior. Uh, She's been emotionally abused uh, by my first boyfriend being manipulated into having sex and convinced into doing little things that added up in the end. After four years, I was afraid of him and his temper. We only parted because uh, we went to study abroad. Any positive experiences with abusers? Yes, he was my first love, I guess. I'm so thankful for all the people I met through him. These people are now some of my closest friends. It's hard for me. I can never tell them what an asshole he is. I also got back together with a different man who had raped me. I'm not sure why. I just liked him so much. I felt incredible shame for going back to my rapist. I feel like it validates uh, the rape itself. Um, by that, I assume you mean that uh, you, the fact that you went back is uh, making it not rape? Is, is, I assume that that's what you mean, in which case I would say no, that does not make it not rape. Um, it is an incredibly common thing that people do, um, having contact with a person that assaulted them afterwards, especially boyfriends or um, friends. And it's it's one of the ways the brain uh, convinces us that it wasn't that big of a deal. It's a way I, I think of trying to control the past. Darkest Thoughts. 
thinking about how great it would be if my eating disorder killed me, fantasizing about how surprised everyone would be that I was sick, thinking about how delicate and fragile I would look in my casket, thinking about how sad all my ex-boyfriends would be if I killed myself and how they should have taken me more seriously. Darkest Secrets. I used to be anorexic, then bulimic, and now I chew and spit all my meals. I still puke sometimes, especially at family functions, where the food is too tempting or people are watching. Uh, but now I chew and spit. The release is, is almost as good as binging and purging. There is an emptiness inside of me that needs to be filled with disgusting amounts of food. I chew and spit out so much food, my salivary glands are swollen. My jaw is tired and my tongue is burnt by the salt. I'm repulsed by how much food I waste. It looks absolutely disgusting. And yet despite this, I still feel I'm too fat and need to restrict even more. I wish I looked as sick as I feel. Boy, that last sentence, I mean all of it, but that last sentence especially is so profound and heartbreaking. You know, there's a really common uh, fantasy that people have, which is uh, of being physically injured some somehow and having to be hospitalized and feeling love and comfort and and attention from people that in our ordinary life we feel that we're not getting it from and and I think it's a really uh, it's a really human feeling to have and my thought is what if you just went about finding healthy validation and attention and connection from people. Find your family, you know, find your people. And that's why I'm such a big fan of support groups. It's where I found mine. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I watch weird medical porn, which embarrasses me. The way the old doctor examines every nook and cranny of the young docile girl and approves of her body turns me on so much. I like porn when the girl is made to orgasm as a punishment and the man receives no physical gratification. Uh, I would never tell anyone this. I have only ever had one orgasm from sex with a partner. Most of them give up trying to pleasure me after a few weeks. I'm too ashamed to ask for the precise stuff that would make me orgasm. And you know, that is in, in a way a sexual version of the needs that you're looking for outside of the bedroom, which is to be seen, to have your inner life validated because it deserves to be. And there's nothing wrong with the, the fantasies that you have. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my family about my years of having an eating disorder and the sexual abuse I've had. I would be so curious to see their reaction. I'm afraid if I ever do tell them that they will think less of me and see me as a failure. Uh, or worse, my mom will make it all about her and make me reassure her that it's not her fault. That is definitely, a, I, th I think, a something to consider if you do consider opening up to them 
hoping for some type of nurturing reaction from them because it sounds like that might lead to um, being really disappointed. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I was 30 pounds lighter more than anything in the world. It would totally make all my problems go away. Have you shared these things with others? I've said some of the things to my therapist, but I had to dump him because he denied my rape and didn't seem to understand eating disorders very well. That is so fucked up. I'm so sorry that that was your therapy experience. Uh, How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel perverse for sharing all these things. I feel like an exhibitionist. You are so not an exhibitionist. Um, you, you sound like a sensitive person trying to make sense of an insensitive world. Uh, somebody asked me, uh, what is the key to being a world-class people pleaser? And I thought about firing this one out to somebody else, but I thought, no, I think, I think I can speak for the rest of the uh, people pleaser uh, population. So I'm going to say uh, consistency. You know, whether you're thanking the officer for your ticket or you're apologizing to someone for stepping on your shoe, remember the world's happiness depends on you. And when you're tempted to say no to someone's request for, for something, visualize them dying because of your selfishness. Imagine their funeral. All the eulogies blaming you. People literally pointing at you from the podium. Maybe even the the corpse sitting up and just kind of giving you the stink eye. Just think about, like, after the funeral, word spreading of what a monster you are for, for saying no. Being gossiped about until the very day you die, and then picture your funeral with nobody there except Father Mackenzie. In fact, to remind you of that, make your ringtone a cello. The important thing is you stay on your card. See, that's why Eleanor Rigby died alone. She probably said no to someone. Somebody probably asked her for a shilling so they could get a steak and kidney pie, and she said, ah, fuck, I don't have it on me. Look what happened to her. Face in a jar by the door. Is that what you want? You can get everyone to love you if you are committed to being who they need to be in any situation. Ignore those fiery ulcers in your belly. Ignore that scalp to toenail feeling of dread every morning when you wake up. If you need to, study a Canadian. That's like going to college for people-pleasing. The most important thing is do not give up. The world is counting on you. You know, as they say, when you stop people-pleasing, people aren't pleased. <laughs> Let's take it out with... Uh, with a little something. This is uh, this is from the Love Survey, and uh, this is filled out by Pom Pom, and they write, oh, "Get another coffee one." I love coffee, like a lot. 
I love when my coffee machine beeps to let me know it's ready, and I pour it into my mug, and it's steaming and hot, and the flavor is perfect. I love that first sip of hot coffee in the morning. It's just bliss. I prepare my coffee the night before, and I love knowing that when I wake up, I get to drink it. I love my boyfriend. We've made it through a lot together, including moving across the country, living through the pandemic, having to say goodbye to our beloved cat, among other things. I love that I can be myself around him, even the weird, dorky parts of myself, although he teases me for it. I know he loves me unconditionally. I love how kind he is to animals. He once put out a drop of syrup on her patio for a caterpillar that he thought was struggling. And then in parentheses, I'm pretty sure caterpillars won't eat Aunt Jemima's, but it was still sweet. I love my cats and my dog. I don't have kids and my pets are my babies. My dog is a five-pound Pomeranian, and I love that I can just tuck him under my arm and carry him anywhere we need to go. I love when he licks my face with his tiny tongue. I love my friends. I don't have many because I've struggled with social anxiety since I was a kid, but the few I do have are kind, wonderful people, and I'm so grateful to have them in my life. I've been working on being more honest and open, and I can feel it deepening my relationships. I love how much progress I've made with social anxiety recently. I'm beginning to love meeting new people and socializing with strangers at meetup events. This is in large part because I'm coming to love myself more and learning to believe that I have a lot to offer others. And lastly, I love the podcast. I've been listening for years and it's helped me feel less alone during some dark times. There's nothing like laughing at all the fucked up shit we all have in common. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that. And if you are out there and you're feeling stuck or alone, just never forget that uh, you are not alone. Your your people are everywhere. It's just a, it's a matter of finding them. And it's not always easy and it's not always comfortable, but it is so worth it, that feeling. When you find people that see you and feel you and validate you in a healthy way, um, it's to me, it's the core of, of what life is about is, is human connection. So um, that's all I got. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.